Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today's November the 20th, 2017. It's a Monday, and it's Thanksgiving week. And uh, <clears throat> this is going to be a short week. And this is going to sort of be, I guess, a special show, because I've never done one quite like this before. I'm dedicating today's show to cooking for Thanksgiving. I've done a couple shows like this in the past with Chef Keith Snow, where he's talking about traditional ways of making turkey and things like that. Um, I think those are great shows and great resources. I am going to provide you with um, links in the show notes today if you want to listen to those during this short week. I wanted to get today's show out because some of the stuff I'm going to talk about is going to be stuff you might want to include in this year's Thanksgiving dinner. I figured if I got it to you on Monday, you may be able to... Uh, get it in without kind of last-minute, total last-minute type of thing, because I'm going to give you some cool stuff today. Um, I am going to give you like kind of different things today, things that aren't usually typically thought of, though a lot of classic ingredients and stuff like that. I'm going to tell you how to make turkey in a way that if you try it, if you try it, and you may not trust me this Thanksgiving. I mean, I've only been doing this nine and a half years, and I've never steered you wrong, but you may not trust me this Thanksgiving Uh, to do it this way, but if, if if you don't, maybe maybe do one early for Christmas, I don't know, or something like that, and, uh, you know, hear me out today on this. Anyway, what I'm going to do this, this week uh, is, or today's show, I'm not going to do any of the typical housekeeping. I am going to let you know what the rest of the week is going to have in store for you, and uh, then just get on into it. So... Tomorrow I have a show that's been a long time coming. I, I, I floated it like two years ago. And then somebody finally got off his big ass and decided he wanted to do it. And that someone, of course, is Stephen Harris. And when I say big ass, because the guy's like six foot six. He's huge. I don't mean he's fat. And uh, But he finally got off his ass and wanted to do it. Filled out a, a guest form, got with Dorothy, and got we got him scheduled. So Dorothy accidentally scheduled him for Wednesday. Well, I'm not doing a show Wednesday. So we moved this interview to Tuesday. We'll have that out Tuesday. And it's going to be on bug out trailers. We're going to, and we're not, we have no show prep done. To this moment, I have no show prep done. Steve is promised, Steve like the, the, the maniac of show prep. So far he's promised that he has no show prep done. We're going to spitball. Different ways that we would put together bug out trailers if we had to leave and we had to take everything we had with us and just kind of do it on the fly. That should be fun. Then Wednesday, we will have the Thanksgiving special, which I did the first time when the show was like four and a half, five months old. The first Thanksgiving, we did a, a survivalist view of Thanksgiving. It's become kind of a tradition, you know, like... I don't know, in my house, even though you know, all the kids are gone, we still watch Charlie Brown Christmas and uh, Charlie Brown Thanksgiving every year. And I, I think the Christmas and uh, Thanksgiving shows at TSP for some members of the audience have become kind of like that, you know, a tradition to listen to. And then we're done for the week, right? So Thursday is Thanksgiving, of course. I won't be doing a show on Black Friday. 
Um, I will take all of this time with my family as be has become my custom. And uh, I'll, I'll let you know that, like, so that's going to happen again around Christmas time. I didn't look at the calendar yet, but it'll either be like the 23rd, probably, will be the last day that I do a show for the year. And then the next time you'll hear me will be January 2nd or the earliest Monday. And these are things that go back to when I was in uh, the cabling and communications industry as a contractor, and we were sent all over the country, and it was just kind of the case that you were just sent home for these periods of time. Like, since you were going to be working in, like, El Paso out of Dallas, it just didn't make sense for you to show up to work Friday, you know, you know Black Friday. A lot, of, a lot of places don't have Friday. But what it really didn't make sense to do was show up in between Christmas and New Year's with days off and all. So they, they had a, a, a kind of an informal policy just shutting down. And when I left contracting, and this is 25 years ago, I guess now, and I went into more conventional employment, even if it required me taking my own personal uh, holidays, PTO, holidays, uh, what do you call it, vacation days, whatever, I always stuck to that. It, it just seemed to me like something you could give your family. you know. And I'm not, I'm not railing on anybody that doesn't do it. Obviously, things are open. I go do things during these periods of time. Uh, and I, I'm not putting anybody down. It doesn't take that time off. But if you can, it, to me, especially if you're like a type A, hardworking personality, and back especially when I traveled, it just seemed like the right thing to do. And when I was able to go out completely on my own, I decided to just maintain that. So I'll be doing that every year. Just a little piece of advice. If you can ever make that happen, once you do it, you may never stop doing it. Anyway, so... What are we going to talk about today? Well, again, we're going to talk about cooking for Thanksgiving, but I'm going to give you some of my thoughts on like having a great experience, first of all, with your family, especially if you are the host. Oh, by the way, some of this stuff, you know, you might be able, if you're not the host, make it up and take it with you. All right, so, but let's start off with my bane of my existence in dealing with, with people, not just my family, but with people when it comes to dinners and stuff like that. Lateness. Um, before I tell you what I do about it, I'm going to tell you how I feel about it. If you're late because something happened and you called and you let me know something happened, you called and you let me know. I, I don't really hold that against anybody. Um, what I have a real problem with is chronic lateness. And I have people in my life who are chronically late. And I'll, I'll tell you, if that's you, fix your shit. And if you don't like it, I'm sorry. Because here's what, it, here's what it means when there's someone in your life that whenever you guys agree to do something together, you are the one that's always late or one that's the other way around. They are the one that's always late. Their time or your time is more important than the other person's time. That's what you're saying when you're chronically late. When you're always 30, 40 minutes late, when you're always the person or always the family that's late, it's not that you're busy. Everybody's busy. It's that you feel that what you need to do is more important than the commitment you made to somebody else. Now, you may not mean that up front, but in the undercurrent, that's why, and again, this is not the person that's occasionally late or late once in a blue moon. This is the, the person, couple, family that's always late. Your time's more important than my time. That's what you're saying. So I'm going to tell you what I do about it with people that I know that are chronically late. I call it tardiness protocol 101. I lie. If I'm going to have dinner at 5, I tell them 4. You know, I, I just do. 
And when they show up, there's other shit going on, so nobody ever knows. If they happen to show up on time, which these people that I do this to never show up on time, then there's, you know, I'll have appetizers and stuff out, the game's going, whatever. You know, it's not like leave, you're early, right? But if they, then if they show up late, I don't care anymore. And I will lie, depending on the individual, by one to one and a half hours. I used to lie by 30 minutes, and that just continuously made me frustrated because they would end up right at that you know, specific time when everything was supposed to start, which you, know, you kind of need a little bit of get, go with the flow, kind of get people in the door before you sit down to a big meal. But do not be afraid to deal with your chronically late family and friends using tardiness protocol 101, which is lying. Because that's, that's the way to... And here's the thing. Let's say they show up on time. Well, great. You have stuff going on. You just don't have the critical thing like the food going on the table and everything's getting cold and you worked hard to bring it all together at this particular time and somebody brings their late ass in at 25 minutes after the hour. So just lie. And don't feel bad about it. And again, if they show up on time, great. Hey, great. Guess what we got going on? And have things going on that if they're not there for you, you don't care. And that's the only way I know to deal with it without you know losing your mind or, or ruining relationships. Next, enjoy the day and spread things out. I think one of the big problems we have with, with Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners and stuff like that, everybody shows up, you throw the food on the table, everybody wolfs it down, everybody goes into a turkey coma, and everybody just kind of lays around. And there's, I guess there's some good in that. I mean, you know, you're together and everybody's calm at that point. But it always amazed me when that kind of went on with... with with our family because I get up hey, like 6 o'clock in the morning and if we sit down to dinner let's say 2.30 I've been on my feet working till 2.30 and everybody shoves food in their hole and they're done by 2.45 at the, you know, 2.50 and then they're just comatose it seems like an awful lot of work to put into something for 15 minutes to shove a food down your hole So what I've tried to do is now do appetizers and kind of have people hang out and shred that out. And what that does with the – see, people think of appetizers as it increases your appetite so you, you enjoy your food. When you do appetizers right, what it does is it actually sedates your appetite a little bit. So when you sit down to your meal, you eat a little slower. So we'll be talking about some appetizers today. If people drink, when they get there, put a drink in their hand. Do not put an open bar or you know an open bottle on a bar top in front of them. If you have family members that you know you can do that with, and it makes your life easier that the wine bottle or the spirit bottle is there just to be re, you know reused as necessary, fine. But if you have people that tend to get a little fired up on the fire water, so to say, and get a little mouthy and cause a little trouble, put a drink in their hand because that mellows them out, but control and throttle the serving of the alcohol with those people. But I do find that with your drinkers, your social drinkers, putting a drink in their hand almost immediately when they come in the home. Know what they like. Don't ask them if they want a drink. Because they're going to be there long enough that that first drink is going to be out of their system if they have to drive. Right? That first drink chills people. It gives people something to do, and it gives people a social lubricant. They start talking to each other, and they do one of the most important things that they can do for you if you're the cook. Stay the F out of your kitchen. See, I have a rule, and it took my family like five years to learn that I'm not kidding, it's not a joke, I mean it. When I'm cooking for everybody, 
and you have four or five people running your mouth in my kitchen, which is relatively small, in my way, you are in my way, so therefore get out of my kitchen. There is a line. Now, we have a great big bar top, like uh, island, and on the other side of that, you can see into the kitchen, you can talk to me, you're welcome to be there, but you cannot come into the working area of the kitchen unless you are part of the cooking crew, which none of you are, so get the F out. Drinks in hands tend to keep people a little bit more compliant with that rule. If it's important to you, it's important to me. Stay out of my kitchen is a rule. Now, when I'm done cooking, you are welcome to go in there and do all the dishes you want. You're welcome to go in there and get leftovers. You're welcome to go in there and make a, a Pop-Tart if you want. I don't care. But when I'm cooking, you're out. Uh, next, whenever politics come up, talk about sports. Get politics out, and I talk about this in the special a little bit, a little bit more softly, but in general, if you have political adversaries in your family, they are not allowed to talk about politics. It is the dumbest thing in the world till you finally get family members together, maybe see each other once or twice a year, and you're going to argue about which political clown is the better political clown. Well, neither one of them give a shit about you, and if both of you were on fire right now, neither person from your side would piss on you if you were burning to put you out. This is not the day for that. So that's how I referee it. It doesn't happen much with our family. My family is mostly political conservatives, Republicans, and uh, I'm not, right? I'm, I'm an anarchist. I don't expect anybody to make the leap to anarchism on Thanksgiving. I let it go. They don't fight because they're all in that box. They're all in that right-wing box, so it's fine. But if anything comes up, hey, who do you think is going to win the Cowboys game? Well, we were talking, no, you're not. No, you're not. We're not talking about that today. We're not going to argue politics today. We're going to talk about the Cowboys and the Steelers and football or basketball or anything. But we're not talking about this. Here's the drink. Shut your hole. Put that in your hole. Talk about something else. I'm a little bit nicer, but you get my point, right? It's, it's, it's what always causes the fights. Um, and next, perceived criticism from in-laws and things like that. One of the things that I did not like about my past interviews with Keith Snow is the stereotypical, and the mother-in-law is sitting, this is his words, sitting there looking down her nose and wondering if the turkey's going to be dry and all, because I've seen this come from many different angles. And I want to explain a little bit of where some of it comes from. Now, maybe you are that stereotypical family. It is uh, with the Griswold Christmas uh, Christmas Vacation with the mother-in-law not liking the other side on both sides of it and being snooty about it. That happens. I'm not going to say it doesn't. But in general, I think the main reason, and you know, maybe the first year or two of a marriage, and it's the, the first Thanksgiving at their home, and it, it, it could be some of that, you know, are you good enough for my kid or whatever? I, I don't know. But I think the bigger reason is, generally speaking, when an in-law, mother-in-law, father-in-law, what have you, is going to somebody else's house for Thanksgiving. Often it's maybe one of the first times that the Thanksgiving dinner's not at their house. You've taken something from them. I know that I, fortunately, when it comes to Thanksgiving dinner, my son and our daughter-in-law is like, they're going to go to like the, in, the other in-laws, the, our, uh, you know, our in-laws across the, my, uh, what you call your, your, your they're my son's father and mother-in-law. I don't know if you call them to us, but uh, her parents. They're going to go to her parents' place for Thanksgiving early and come to us late. They're going to eat two dinners because they have to have it at their house. Um, 
if, if my son and my daughter decided, hey, we're tired of this shit and doing two meals and we want to have it at our house and we want everybody to come to our house, I would go and I would shove my hole. But I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie and tell you that a guy that is so passionate about cooking as myself is not gonna feel like I've lost something in my ability to be the person who cooks for everybody. Now, because I know that I'm probably not gonna be making any snide comments or something, but what I want you to understand is when that mother-in-law makes a snide comment about something being dry or something, what they're really thinking is, this was taken from me. So just let it go. Because one day it's gonna be you. Remember, all of the old people that do things that you think is like weird or whatever, like they were young people like you once, and you're going to get old. As I hit my you know, point where I'm now Papa Jack instead of just a dad, I'm a granddad, I, I start to understand that more. So just ignore perceived criticism. And because sometimes, sometimes they're not even criticisms. Sometimes people complain it's not about you. That's nothing to do with you. But you take it personally. And I know I'm going to get flagged for this. But especially you women. I see women get offended by shit that no man would ever be offended by because it means nothing. But because it came from this person in this way, it must be, let it all freaking go. Do your best job you can as a host. If something's not perfect, tough shit. No one ever makes a meal for that many people with this much going on where everything's perfect. It doesn't happen. Something's always not quite as good as you would have liked it to be. That's okay. Let it go. And now let's get into how we're going to cook. Okay, so I, I want to start out with appetizers. And here's kind of where this goes back to my intro, right? Where I was like, enjoy the day and spread stuff out. If you wait till everybody's there and then pass out like a little plate of appetizers and then have like a 15, 20 minute lag or more before everybody sits down at the table, dinner's going to last longer. It's not going to, people think it's going to go shorter because people ate something. Well, you're not going to give them a lot of food, but what you're going to do is give them some food to take the edge off with not just shoving pretzels or pickles or whatever you put out on a tray or meats and cheeses uh, into them. Something really kind of taking it up a level. Yet all, all four of these things are actually really easy to do and can be at least somewhat done in advance. And... They all are unique. They all bring in something that's kind of fall, Thanksgiving-ish to, to the table. And they kind of set the course for dinner. And one actually is going to trick people into eating something a lot of people don't eat. You wish they would if you were cooking, you make it. And I'll tell you how not to ruin it when uh, we get to it. So the first one is sweet potato rounds with cranberry and walnut lebna. What's lebna? For those that haven't listened to the show for a long time, Lebna is yogurt cheese. You're going to have to make your Lebna at least a day in advance. Probably would be a good idea for you to make it today, if you're listening on Monday or tomorrow at the latest, so that it's ready to go. So we're going to start out with how we make a cranberry and walnut Lebna. To, to make this, we are going to use dehydrated cranberries. I think they call them craisins. You can get them in the same aisle that you get raisins. And we're going to take, you know, a couple handfuls of these things, and we're going to pour some hot water over them. Okay? We are going to pour just enough hot water over them to wet them down and cover them. So we want to put them in a pot that's maybe big enough that they're a single layer. We're going to heat the water up separately, like in a tea kettle. We're going to pour it over just barely. You can even be halfway covered. 
what you want to do is plump them up a bit without totally rehydrating them. You want to leave a little chew to them is what you're going for. So that's a separate thing. We're going to make our labna. So they're going to do that, and we're going to let that cool. So the water should be 100% absorbed. If you taste one, you think, like, that's plumped up a little, like, dump the excess water off. Stop the process. Okay? You get a, a couple big hand. Now you're going to ask me for a, a direct recipe. I don't have one. A couple handfuls of walnuts. You're going to give them a rough chop so they're smaller, bite-sized pieces. You're going to get some yogurt. You need plain yogurt. Not yogurt with, with anything else in it. It needs to have basically... Uh, yogurt cultures and milk need to be the only ingredients. If you can get whole fat yogurt, you're better off. If you can't, that's okay. You can use a no-fat yogurt, though I think a no-fat yogurt is a sin against food. There's no such thing as no-fat yogurt. No traditional culture makes no-fat yogurt. It's something that's been done in America because we're retarded. A Greek style is probably best, but you want plain yogurt. You're going to place it into something called a flour sack towel. Okay? A flour sack towel or a piece of cheesecloth. I'm going to have a link in the show notes where you can get flour sack towels today or at least see what they are. You're going to take it, you're going to put it in there. You're going to put your walnuts and your cranberries in there. Obviously, you're going to adjust the quantity based on how much of this you want to make. Personally, I would make quite a bit of this. So maybe two cups of yogurt or more. So, you know, the more yogurt, the more nuts and cranberries. You're going to put it in there. You're going to mix it while the yogurt's still soft. You're going to you know, wrap your paper, your, uh, your, your flour sack towel or your, uh, or your cheesecloth up, and you're going to let it drain overnight, at least 12 hours till it gets firm. There's a couple different ways you can do this. You can hang it by a string like a sack over a bowl and catch the whey. Or you can put it in a, like a colander, like a metal colander, and you can actually put like a weight on it, and that actually is really a good idea. Take like a small uh, serving plate, set it on there, and it's like a big heavy can of soup on top of that. That'll help squeeze it out even a little bit more, and make it a little bit more firm. Now you're gonna now when you're done with that, you can refrigerate it. You're gonna have basically a soft cheese with cranberry and walnuts in it. It's very, very good, and I would make more than you need for the side dish because this is going to be something you can put out later or put on the table with bread or something like that. People are going to love it. It's going to get a little pink from the cranberries because we plumped them, and that's a good thing. All right. Now, we're going to make our sweet potato rounds. Now, obviously, the lebda can be done in advance. Sweet potato rounds, good idea to do those right around the time you're going to serve them. We're going to cut the sweet potatoes into about a half-inch thick round, so smaller long sweet potatoes are best for this or if you bigger ones you might have to cut them in half you're going to hit them with a little bit of olive oil salt and pepper on both sides you're going to bake them parchment paper or a non-stick uh, pan is best for about 15 minutes on each side at 350 degrees so salt pepper olive oil bake both sides 350 degrees while they're warm we're going to have taken our lebna out put some aside let it come up to room temperature so it's not ice cold and we're going to put about a tablespoon to a teaspoon, depending on the size of our thing, on top of each one of those sweet potatoes. You're going to have to figure out the order you do this stuff in based on your kitchen, how you want to do things and all, because I'm trying to make a little platter for you. I'm saying you give everybody one of those. So if you have 10 people, you make 10. You need enough leavening to make 10. If you have 12 people, you make 12. If you have 6 people, you make 6. If you want to do 2 of those, you can. It's up to you. It's kind of cool, though, with appetizers to leave people. I wish there was another one of those. All right? So that's number one. Number two, 
Apple and chestnut stuffed mushrooms with bacon. Or basically anything small. So again, I don't have a direct recipe here, but you're going to use equal amounts of chestnuts and apples. Now, if you want to go out and buy fresh chestnuts, make an accident, put them in the oven and bake them, and peel them, chop them up, fine. I buy chestnuts to come in a foil pouch. They're already ready to go already. Okay, They're peeled, and they're ready, and they're, they're cooked, and you open them up, you chop them up, and you throw them into whatever you're cooking, because chestnuts are best cooked in things. Now, if you're going to eat fresh chestnuts, roasted out of their shell is the way to go. But if you're going to cook with them, buy the pre-cooked, pre-peeled, ready-to-go ones they store great. I'll have a link in today's show notes where you can get the uh, chestnuts and the flour sack towels if you want to still get them that way, or at least you know what you're looking for. And the uh, chestnuts you can still get. If you order them today, you can get them by Wednesday. All right? Uh, actually, you can get them overnight if you'll pay extra shipping. But we're going to mix equal amounts of, we're going to peel and dice apple in small dices, about one-inch dice. And chestnuts, we're going to dice those about one inch. So it's a cup and a cup, two cups and two cups, three and a half cups and three. However much you need to get done whatever you need to get done. And we're going to take a saute pan and we're going to add some butter. Probably about a couple tablespoons, but I don't know how much apple and chestnut you have. All right? We're going to start to saute that with some salt and pepper to taste in that saute pan. When we get it to the point where it looks like the apples are beginning to soften. So you pick up the apple and bite it. That's how you know that you taste it. You don't want it to be mushy, but it starts to soften a bit. Then you're ready. You're going to add more butter. How much butter? I don't know because I don't know how much you're making. So you're going to add enough butter till it starts to pool. So there's more butter than you would want. And then you're going to take the stuff that the, the, the bag of um, cornbread stuffing mix, like cornbread crumbles, or you can make your own cornbread and you can make it go stale and grate it with a grater or, or, or bash it up or whatever you want to. Or you can go buy like the Pepperidge Farm pre-made. By the way, no paleo on this day. Like I'm going to stop at a pet peeve here. You know, like six ways to keep your diet during the holidays. Shut up. On Christmas and Thanksgiving, shut up and eat. All right, just saying. So we're going to take that and we're going to start adding handfuls of it to soak the butter up and to bind the stuffing together. How much? I don't know. I don't know. If it's a little too dry and you don't, the butter's not enough, you could add a little bit of chicken stock to it or a little bit of water. You're going to make it a nice bound stuffing of chestnuts, cornbread, and apples, salt and pepper. Little sage is nice on that too if you want. You're going to make that, you're going to set aside. It's ready. It's ready for whenever you're ready. And if you're going to put it in a refrigerator, let's say you're going to make this Wednesday, you're going to put it in a refrigerator and take it out of the freaking refrigerator on Thursday morning. So that by the afternoon when you're going to cook, it's come up to room temperature, everything's going to go much better for you. The other thing that you're going to do, you're going to get some bacon. How much bacon? I don't know how many of these things you're making, so I don't know. But you only need a little piece of bacon for each one. So if you need four slices of bacon, take four slices of bacon. You're going to put them in the microwave. You're going to microwave them. I don't know your microwave. You're going to microwave them until like half done. This is going to make your life so much easier when you're going to put this stuff in the oven. Because this one's going to go in the oven assembled. So you're going to, you're going to half cook it. So you wouldn't want to eat it. But it started to render some of the fat out. You put it on a paper towel, put it in there for 30 seconds to a minute, watch it. 
If it starts to look like it's getting done on the end, stop it. Take it out, cut it up into pieces about the size of the mushrooms you're using. Set it aside. That can be done the day before, too. Then we're going to take mushrooms. I like to use like a cremini mushroom, which is basically a plain old white cap, but they look a little brown for some reason. Pull the stems out of them. Chop the stems up, do something else with them. Now we've got the little mushroom cap. We're going to put with a spoon that, that chestnut and, and uh, apple stuffing into the mushroom. Put one little piece of bacon on it. That's it. We're going to put them on a thing. We're going to bake those. Now, I'll tell you what's really good on this. I don't have... Uh, on the show notes, a little bit of real Parmesan cheese. So you put your stuffing in, you put a little bit of the Parmesan cheese, you put your bacon on top of that. We're going to bake those at 350 until they start to get warm. How long? I don't know your oven. I don't know how many you got. Probably about 20 minutes. And right at the end, before we take them out, we're going to turn the broiler on and we're going to watch it. We are not going to walk away, especially on that day. It's too easy to get distracted. We're going to watch them. As soon as that bacon starts to crisp, we're going to kill it, and we're going to pull those out. Okay? So now we've got the sweet potato rounds, the cranberry walnut levna. We've got the apple and chestnut stuffed mushroom. My family hates mushrooms. Okay. Then you can stuff anything you want with this, but I'll tell you a really good thing to do it with. Get yourself a baguette. You know, a baguette piece of bread, real, the real skinny long one. Cut them into slices. Hit it on both sides with olive oil, sprinkle a little garlic powder on there, a little bit of salt and pepper, and, and toast both sides of it. Right? Actually, toast one side of it upside to the broiler till the bottom's toasted a little bit. And the bottom will get a little toasted too. Flip it over, put your stuff on it, and then throw it in there and bake it like that with the bacon on top. Finish it with just the same way. But if you, if you put the bread in there without giving a little bit of a toast first, it'll get soggy. When everything soaks into it. So you want to, you know, at least toast up one side of that, bring it out, let it cool down, put the stuffing on it, put it back in. It'll be good, too. I can't think of really any other thing to do this with, but if you can, great, go with it. That stuffing will go with anything as an appetizer. You could serve it by itself. You could serve it in a little blob, basically, with a piece of bacon on it if you wanted to. Or you could serve it in a mushroom and tell the non-mushroom eaters to eat the stuffing out of the mushroom. And give the mushroom to their friend that likes mushrooms. Okay? Now, your last one, this is genius, by the way. It's basically a French fry. It's basically a French fry. But it's a twice-fried French fry made from a half of a potato, but a half of a fingerling potato. So you want to get are the big, not really big, but the long fingerling potatoes. Not the ones that are different colors, like red and purple. And I, you want the brown ones that are like, you know, they're like maybe a little bit bigger around in your thumb and they're a couple, three, four inches long. They call them roasters. This is a traditional thing done at Thanksgiving, other than, than uh, mashed potatoes a lot of times. I did this a lot where you roast the potatoes in the oven with some rosemary and thyme. You know, usually some bacon grease. Usually you boil them a little bit first. Then you roast them with the bacon grease. That way they crisp up a bit. So what we're going to do here is we're going to take those potatoes and just cut them in half. We're going to drop them down into oil and we're going to fry them until they're done to where, you know, if you ate one, you go, okay, it's cooked. We're going to take it out. We're going to drain it. We can do this if we need to Wednesday. We're going to let them cool. We're going to not let them stick together. We're going to let them all drain nicely of their oil, paper towel or something like that. When they're cool, we're going to smash them just a bit. 
Don't mush them. Just push down a little bit till the sides crack a little bit and the potato opens up a little bit. When we're ready to serve our appetizers, we're going to drop these into oil and we're going to fry them a second time. When we do that, they will get crispy like you cannot imagine. I don't know what the chemical process is. I'm not a biochemist or anything, but I'm telling you, you can never fry, and you do this with French fries too, by the way. You can never fry a potato once and get it as crispy as frying it, letting it cool, and frying it again. It'll turn brown, it'll get crushy, the parcels will open, oil will get in. It's very, very, very good. We're going to make a seasoning mix with rosemary, thyme, salt, and pepper. Put in our little spice grinder, our Mr. Coffee grinder, and we are going to grind it. We are not going to grind it really fine, but we are going to break it up. And the best way to do this, if you're going to grind your own pepper, so take your salt, take about a tablespoon of salt, put it in a bowl. Put about a tablespoon of peppercorns in the grinder, grind the peppers. You want to do this separately. Because otherwise you're going to get some stuff coarse and some stuff like powder. So grind the peppercorns until they're about the way you like it. Add it to your salt. Now, add about a tablespoon of rosemary. Pulse the grinder. You don't want it to be a powder. You get it with you. And thyme, you can usually just put a tape. So that'd be four tablespoons. Probably make plenty of this stuff. Mix that up in a little bowl. And then right when they come out, set them upright so that the peeling side is down and sprinkle by hand that mixture onto them. Those three things are going to go onto a plate and be served as like an appetizer course. Now, you can make one of these. You can make them all and serve them independently on platters. But I'm, I'm giving you an idea here. And what we're going to do to kind of bring it all together, we're going to make, we're going to make some cranberry sauce. And I know a lot of people are like, ew, cranberry sauce. I'm going to tell you the reasons people don't like cranberry sauce. Some people just don't like cranberries. Okay? Well, you're not going to like the cranberry lebna, but if you like that, you like cranberries. So that's not your excuse anymore. There's, there's two main reasons people don't like cranberry sauce. One is that people buy cranberry sauce in a can, and they dump it out like jello, and they slice it in these god-awful slice things, and it's horrible. And the other reason is that it's served cold. You're sitting down to happy, warm turkey dinner, and you have this gelatinous, even if you make it the way I'm about to tell you, ice-cold cranberry thing sitting there. No. Cranberry sauce is best served warm. What you're going to do is you're going to make cranberry sauce with your appetizers for the dinner table, but you're going to pre-sell it by putting a little spoon of it on the plate. What you're going to do if you're smart and you don't want to hate your life you're going to get some nice, like, plastic throwaway plates that are, you know, like a, a, an appetizer size. And plastic forks. Black goes really well with this. You're going to plate it this way. You're going to put each one of those like a triangle on the outside of the plate. You're going to take your, a spoon, and you're going to lay a little bit of that warm, important, I'll tell you how to make it a second, warm cranberry sauce down with that. It's going to go really good with the mushrooms. It's going to go really good with the potato. It probably is a bit much for the lemon because it already has cranberry in it. It's going to be pretty good all by itself. You say, just try it. And all of a sudden, when you serve it for dinner, people are going to eat it. They're going to realize that tastes really good with stuffing, so they're going to mix it a little bit with their stuffing or put it on the side because it's not going to be ice cold. And you, who says, but I don't like it either, if you try this, you probably will. It's tart, it's sweet, what's not to love? Ice-cold jello, that's what's not to love. It's out of place. So how do we make this? Okay, 
This time of year when you go to the market, you're going to see 12-ounce bags of whole cranberries. As everybody has them. Usually Ocean Spray is the brand. You might be able to find uh, organic or whatever, but that's what you're going you're to find in a 12-ounce bag. You need a cup of sugar to a 12-ounce bag, and what they're going to say to do is put a, a cup of water in there with them. You're not going to do a cup of water. It's going to be way too wet. What you're going to do, you're going you're to get a saucepan that's big enough that those 12 ounces are like maybe two layers deep at the most. And you're going to put about a quarter cup of water in there. And you're going to start to bring them up to temperature. And you're going to slowly stir in your one cup of sugar. If it gets to the point where it seems like it's sticking, it's too dry, you're going to add little bits of water until it's just enough to simmer them. You're going to simmer them for about 10 minutes until they start to pop and break and get soft. You're going to stir them, give them a good stir. You're going to put them in a bowl that is much bigger than you need because nothing makes a mess like fresh cranberry sauce. So you want at least a good two inches of freeboard, right? And you're going to put them into that bowl. And that's your serving bowl. You're going to serve them in that bowl. You're going to set them aside. You're going to leave them stay warm. It's a good thing if that bowl can go in the oven and warm up a little bit or go in a microwave and warm up a little bit. You might just throw a little bit of warmth into them before you serve them. But that's going to, so that's where you're going to get it to plate with. Now, why did I say get a throwaway, decent looking little plastic plate or paper plate with a plastic fork for this? Because the last thing you need to be doing is dishes in the middle of the day here. You're already trying to clean as you go your pots and your pans. You don't need people coming in. Can I help with? You don't need any of that. So you have a garbage can outside of the the, the, the sector of, dis, of dissemination, right? You know, you're not allowed in this sector. So the garbage can's outside of that area. And when you're done with your appetizer, just throw it away. If you have a huge Thanksgiving, it's 20 plates you're throwing away and 20 forks. It's five bucks worth of shit. It's worth it. So that's my appetizer idea for you this year. A lot of different things you can do, but I'm telling you, little bits serve together. So instead of people picking off a plate or anything, boom, 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 here you go. And that's when people say, can I help? Yeah, put these three things on a plate, start passing them out. Out there, outside of outside of your, your you know, your sector of dissemination, right? You come in here, you get decimated, you know? There's a one in ten chance I'll kill you is what that means, right? Stay out of my kitchen. So just some thoughts on that. And it's, you know, all of that is really cool and really different and a little over the top, but none of it's too foo-foo. None of it's too artsy-fartsy. None of it's too, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, five-star restaurant-ish. It's just good quality stuff using the things that are around you. And, again, you can make things however you want. Let's get to uh, cooking a turkey. And if you go back and listen to Chef Keith, he'll tell you how to cook a whole turkey. And you'll hear him basically say, you'd be better off not cooking it whole, but everybody has to cook it whole because you want to bring it out whole, even though you're going to carve it before you bring it out, and it's never going to really be seen whole, and people are going to eat it and cut up in pieces. He's lamenting there a little bit because this is the reality. A turkey is a very large bird made up of two very, very different types of meat. And it would really be best if it was not cooked whole. So I always smoke my turkeys. And I'm going to tell you how I do that. But I'm going to tell you that if you can't smoke your turkeys, you don't have a smoker, you don't want to, you don't have to, you can cook this in the oven, and I'll tell you how to do that at the end, and it'll come out beautiful as well. This is how I will always cook a turkey from now on, and I'm going to tell you I fought it kicking and screaming the whole way. 
And there was something that made me accept it. That made me go, this is the way that it's going to be. And that was I started raising my own turkeys about three years ago. And I got this turkey home, and it was 38 pounds. And I looked at my oven, and I looked at the turkey, and I said, this turkey cannot go in my oven. It doesn't fit. And this turkey will take days to cook whole. So I accepted my fate. And I deboned the turkey, basically. Not really deboned. I'll kind of explain what I did in a second. And I cooked it that way. And I said to myself, self, I don't care if it's an 18-pound turkey. You are never cooking a turkey any other way than this again. So here's what I do now. I take the turkey, I lay it down. I take a sharp knife. I take the two breast cutlets off of it. As much meat as I can get without being wasteful, down to the bone. I take two big breast cutlets off. I set them to the side. Okay. Then I take my knife and I cut the leg quarters off, just like doing a big chicken. So you, you follow that thigh down, you get into where that ball joint is, you get in there, you open the ball joint, you cut it off, you get two leg quarters. Boom, you set those aside. Then we take our wings off. So we same thing, and I like to take the breast cutlets off because there's, it's, you can see better, it's easier to work around now, kind of pull the wing out, get in the ball, we take the wings off. Then I lay the wings down, I cut the tips off the wings. I'll tell you one in a second. So now you've got your wings, your breasts, your thighs. Look at them. Just great big breast cutlet, but it's a totally different meat than the great big leg quarter. And the wing, even though a lot of times they at a chicken place call a wing dark meat, we all know wing is white meat, it's much smaller than the breast, isn't it? I'm just thinking those three things cook at different speeds. Now, What we're going to want to do with them, since that's the main part of the turkey that everybody likes to eat, uh, is we're going to brine them. And this means we will not be waking up on Thursday morning with the turkey we hope is defrosted, because we have done this shit maybe tomorrow. Tuesday is a good day to do your brining. Wednesday is a good day to do your smoking. And then all you have to do on, on uh, turkey day is warm it up. Or you can smoke it on Turkey Day if that's what you want to do. Or you can cook it on Turkey Day, which means that you should brine it on Wednesday. But it means it should be defrosted already if you're going to do this. So we've, we've done that. Now we're going to make our brine. I am going to give you this recipe because you can screw it up. Everything after the salt and the sugar, you pretty much can't screw up. And a couple ingredients that I use I have listed as optional so that you won't freak out if you don't have them, or if you're not sure if you want to use them. So, this is per gallon, and if you cut the turkey up, a gallon will probably get the job done. One cup of salt and one cup of brown sugar per gallon. That's the important part. If you put two cups, you can make it way too salty, and if you put a half a cup of salt, it probably won't get the brine result you're looking for. We're going to make a very juicy, very tender turkey by doing this. The other things we're going to do, and you'll notice that they're not very specific to uh, volume, because you can't screw it up. It's water you're soaking turkey in. Uh, a handful of black peppercorns, whole black peppercorns, by the way. You can crack them a bit if you want to. If you're going to crack them a little bit, throw them in a Mr. Coffee grinder and pulse it a couple times. Do not make it into a powder. Just crack them open. That might let a little more flavor out. Throw those in the water. Uh, a small handful of mustard seed, so like, like a half a handful of whole mustard seed, brown, yellow, I don't care, throw it in. Four to six bay leaves. You can put a few more if you want to. Um, eight sage leaves, whole fresh sage leaves, 
or you can use about a tablespoon of dry sage leaf if you have to use dry. Uh, optional items, it's going to sound a little bit weird, the first one, but two to four star anise, whole star anise in there, and a small handful of whole coriander. Now, here's the best way to do this. Notice I said per gallon, and we're going to make a gallon. We want to cool it down as quickly as possible. We want to dissolve the salt and the sugar. Put around a half a gallon of water. So fill up like a one-gallon jug or figure out how many cups you need for that. Put that into a, a big stock pot. Start bringing it up to temperature. It does not need to boil. I'm going to say this again. It does not need to boil. It's not even optimal that it boils. But get it up to about steaming hot. Dump in your cup of salt and your cup of sugar and mix it until that dissolves. Now throw in your other, all your other spices and, and herbs. Kill the heat, stir it, make sure it's dissolved. As long as all the salt and sugar is dissolved, you're good. Now dump the other half of the water in. If you're smart, throw that freaking thing in the freezer. After you put the half, you can even take a half gallon and put it in the refrigerator like that the morning you're going to do this if you're going to do it in the afternoon or something like that. That will drop the temperature straight down. You can even grab a couple of handfuls of ice cubes out of the freezer and throw them in there. We want to get it just, you want to get it cold enough to start brining the turkey as soon as possible. Then we're going to brine the turkey. There's a couple different ways to do this. One is to get a great big freezer bag. Uh, if you have a, a vacuum sealer, what I've done a lot of times, I'll take the, the rolls that, for the vacuum seal bags, and I'll seal one side of it and make a giant bag, put everything in there, and then pour it over it, and then have somebody help me, and I'll just seal the other side so you know it's not going to leak out. I don't vacuum seal it. Just seal it and set it in something so that it won't leak or whatever. What I've gone to, though, is I have these, I think they're five, four-gallon meat tubs. They're made for meat. And by parting the turkey out, you can put it in there and pour a gallon over it. Usually even a giant turkey will all be submerged. Here's what you need to remember. Keep it under the brine, and everything will be fine. So... If you don't have enough, make more. Use the same ratios, cover it, get it covered, put it in a refrigerator, let it sit for 24 hours. I know, I know. There's the grandiose concept of dad comes out with the turkey and it's on a board and it's got its legs sticking up and it's golden brown, and he's going to sit down and carve it, and would you like dark or light meat? And everybody's freaking hungry, and the guy at the end is waiting, and Dad's eating nice cold food by the time he's done carving the turkey for everybody. And it's the white meat's dry, so everybody wants dark meat, and the dark meat's really good, but there's only so much of it. Listen, whether you smoke it or not, if you do what I just said, All of that goes away. You're going to bring a platter of turkey to the table. It's all going to be cut over. You're going to sit it down. People are going to take what they want, and people will eat the white meat because it will be juicy as you can. I mean, have you ever wondered why if you go to the deli and you get turkey, it's not dry even though it's white breast? Because they let it cool before they cut it. That's the number one thing, and they don't overcook it. By cutting it up, we're not going to overcook it. So what we're going to do, here's the procedure now. We're going to brine the turkey for 24 hours. If we have a smoker, we're going to smoke it, and we're going to keep taking its temperature while we're smoking it, and when we get to where we can put a meat thermometer in there, and make sure you get a meat thermometer, it's 160 degrees to 165 degrees, we're going to pull that part. 
You're going to find that your wings are going to get there first, and that your breast will probably get there second, and your thighs maybe third. That may switch depending on what kind of turkey and how the sizes are and things like that. But the government's going to tell you you have to cook turkey to 165 degrees. I personally don't think you need to go that high, especially if you do the other things I'm about to tell you. Okay? 160 is high enough for me, but I'm required by my desire not to be sued by somebody being stupid to tell you that the number you're supposed to go to is a 165. But I'm going to tell you this. If you put a whole turkey in the oven and you cook it to 165 degrees, when you stick a thermometer in the thickest part of the breast, there are parts of that turkey that are 180 degrees or higher, and that's why they're dry like the ends of your breast, because you have this massive thermal mass and this whole bird distributing heat across it. That's why your wings are fried to a crisp, okay? But if we if we do this this way, as soon as you stick, like you look at it and go, that's kind of looking done to me, and you stick a meat thermometer, it's 140 degrees, it's not done yet. You see 160-something, and I usually like, you know, it's 161, 162, out it comes. So it means the wings are going to definitely come out first and the rest is going to come out whenever the thermometer tells you. How long is it going to take? I don't know. I don't know your smoker. I don't know your oven. I don't know your discipline level about how many times you're going to open the damn thing. I don't know. I'm telling you, you cook it to 160 degrees. As soon as you take that part out, you're going to get very heavy-duty aluminum foil. You're going to wrap it up, sealed, like you were going to bake it and you didn't want it to leak in two, count them, two layers of aluminum foil. And you're going to put that aluminum foil into like some type of a pan in case it does leak, because it probably will, and you're going to cover it with towels, like bath towels, to hold the warmth in. And you're going to keep doing that until the whole turkey's done and put away like that. Got it? Okay. Now, when you're ready to serve, you're going to open those foil pouches, You're going to remove your piece of turkey, and you're going to slice it into serving size slices. You're going to put it on a platter. You're then going to take that pouch, as long as it's not leaking, and you're going to take the juice that's continued to render out of that turkey. You're going to pour it all over the top of it. It's going to be fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. And if you look at your Thanksgiving table and you don't think the whole turkey is going to eat, get eaten, you maybe take out the two leg quarters and half a breast or something like that, and maybe the wings. If you don't think something to get eaten, don't cut it. If people want more, you can go get it and cut more. You know, we've learned a lot by serving people at our workshops. You give them less than they think they want, but when you tell them to come back for seconds, like, you know, only like 20 to 30% of the people even come back for seconds. Put it out, let everybody take what they want. If you have a whole breast of turkey, a whole half breast of turkey, I should say, or a half half breast of turkey, so that's another. Let's say you think, well, I need more than this. Okay, cut the breast in half and then cut up that half. Leave the rest of it whole, wrap it back up. It will be just as moist and juicy on Friday morning as it was on Thursday afternoon. If you cut it up and put it in the refrigerator, that's one of the many reasons your white meat dries out, even if it tastes juicy when you serve it. Let it cool whole, and then you can throw it on your deli slicer if you want to. Uh, pretty freaking good, huh? Oh, man, you oh, just... Uh. Now, you got to figure out how big a turkey and whatever for you. Now, for me, 
tomorrow is going to be small for us. My my son and my daughter-in-law, my wife and me, and and our two grandchildren are, are going to be all of it is here for Thanksgiving uh, dinner. Uh, with my turkeys, I will do one half of a breast and one leg quarter, and I'll still have leftovers. And I'll leave a big chunk of that breast whole. Because I can always go, it's, it's warm. They, meat should really be served about room temperature, not streaming hot. Again, this is all about drying out and everything. Now, the other thing that's happened is the reason you can cook to 160 degrees is when you wrap that up, the, the temperature of that meat is going to continue to build a little bit, and it's going to hit 165. It doesn't matter if it doesn't, because it's going to hold 150, 160 degrees for a long time. You'll find that if you do this, and let's say the turkey's done, like, oh, I don't know, say an hour before you cut it, when you open those foil packs, it's still going to be steaming. So it's sitting there like slow cooking in its own steam. Double pack foil, the heavy stuff. It's not the one you pick the, the box up. You ask the heavy. It feels heavier. That's what you want for this. It's worth a little bit extra for that day. Okay, let's say you don't have a smoker. The key to this is slow cooking. So you want to cook this at about 275. And I know you're thinking my turkey will never get done at 275. If it's a whole turkey, it will get done in parts, and it'll be raw in the middle at 275. If you part it out, brine it, and then roast it the way I'm telling you, and you roast it uncovered, it will be done. The other thing you can do, if you're doing this in the oven instead of the smoker, this is a really good idea. Start taking its temperature, and when, it get, when the parts get up you know, to about 125 degrees internal temperature, wrap them in foil then, and then you can poke that thermometer right through the foil to, take, to get that final temperature. If you do that, Add one more layer of foil when you take it out so that it's sealed in. And those holes, it doesn't all your juices and steam escape and things like that. That's probably a good idea if you're going to do it in the oven. Okay? It's, it's that simple. And the people that were here for the workshop, that turkey you ate, that there was no leftovers of at all, that's how that turkey was done. And it was done like that two and a half weeks before the workshop, frozen, defrosted, and warmed up. And I'll tell you, it was pretty juicy, wasn't it? But it wasn't as juicy as it was the day it was made. So even, like, you can really, you know, go early on this a little bit if you want to. All right, so let's talk about another uh, thing that I like to make. So I will end up making plain old bread stuffing because my family is boring. And they don't like adventurous things. And they like plain old bread stuffing with gravy. So I'll do that. Um... But I will make, just for me, cornbread and sausage stuffing with chestnuts. So here's how you do that. Again, I'm back to, I'm not baking cornbread and then letting it go stale and then hitting it with a cheese grater. I'm going to go buy the Pepper's Farm cornbread stuffing mix. It's one day a year. It's actually two because I do the same kind of shit for Christmas. But that's, you know, if all, all the other different. Um, and... I'm pretty much going to follow the directions on the bag for that. But here's what else I'm going to do. And so I'll start out with, like, for your regular bread stuffing, a, a, a cup or two of onions and a cup or two of celery in it makes it a lot better. And make it with chicken stock or chicken broth instead of water. So you follow the directions on the bag. But, and here's, I don't, 
I don't try to make extra work for myself when this much is going on. So usually when you go to Albertsons or whatever grocery store you have in the produce section, they'll have pre-diced onions and celery, like a 50-50 mix. Just get one of those. And one of those per bag of stuffing is all you need. So you, you put your butter, and it'll tell you on the bag, but you basically put your butter in the pan that it calls for and throw your onions and celery in there and cook them until they're soft and then follow the direction. Basically, you add chicken stock and then throw the bread and then spit and mix it around until it absorbs everything. You follow the directions, okay? All right. Put it in what in my favorite thing for the holidays, the foil pans that are like a dollar a piece that you throw away, you put it in one of those, you wrap that with foil, you set it aside. You make that about you know a couple hours before you're going to eat. You can throw that in the oven to warm it up, and if you want to make it really, really good, okay, take the foil off the top, turn the broiler on, watch it, do not walk away from it, crisp the top for your regular stuffing. Now, cornbread and chestnut sausage stuffing. I've made this a lot of different ways. I've done it with kind of like the breakfast sausage type of sausage. I've done it with my own sausage. I'm going to tell you the best the best I've ever had is done with andouille sausage. So smoked andouille sausage, at least a pound. Maybe get two one-pound uh, links and do a pound and a half, two pounds if you're adventurous. I don't know. But the key here is don't do what everybody does with this stuffing and make slices. Dice. It'll take more time, but dice the sauce. You know, cut about a you know, six-inch piece, cut it in half, cut it in half again, cut sticks out of it, and then dice it to about the size of the stuffing size of the regular breadcrumb. Not breadcrumb, but the bread cube stuffing that my family likes, right? So you make, you know, about a pound of that, maybe a little more. It's up to you how much. And then about an equal, not in weight, but in volume amount of chestnuts, which, again, I buy in the bags. I'll have a... A link in the show notes where you can get them. Now, here's where it gets a little bit different, even though you're sort of kind of going to follow the directions. Throw all of your sausage with a little bit of butter into the skillet with celery and onions. Again, about a cup of each to make a standard batch of stuffing. This is going to be a little bit bigger because there's quite a bit of chestnuts and, 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 uh, and sausage in there. And stir that around. And, so, and cook the sausage. No one does this. Cook the sausage down a bit. Start to render out some of the sausage fat and get it a little bit crispy. Once that's rendered down, then throw your chestnuts in there and just, just stir them around a little bit. Okay. Now, add your chicken stock as per the directions. Don't, don't adjust it up any. And go ahead and dump in your cornbread crumbly stuff from Pepper's Farm. And mix that all together. If it needs a little bit more moisture, and it probably won't, you can add a little bit of butter, put it into one of those, you know, metal. You could put it in a nice serving dish if you want to. I like the little metal tinfoil things that when you're done with them, you throw them away. They also go right in the refrigerator easy. They store easy. They go back in. They warm up. You know, I, if you want it to be pretty, go ahead. But I put it in one of those, put the foil over it, set it aside. If you want to, like I'm doing, make two different stuffings for two different types of people. Adventurous and boring. Same thing. Warm it up right before. Hit it with a little bit of the broiler. Give it a crisp. Please, I'm telling you a lot of different times to use the broiler today. Do not walk away from your oven while the broiler is on at Thanksgiving. You will burn shit to a crisp. 
It will happen every single time. But that stuffing is freaking dynamite. That'll be your favorite leftover. And turkey gravy on that? <laughs> I know, like andouille sausage and turkey. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm telling you. Here's some other ways you can liven up stuffing. Um, cube up a couple apples and throw it in your regular bread or your cornbread stuffing. That's another way. Um, chop up a couple cups of um, pecans. Pecans and stuffing, very, very good. Very, very good. Those are the couple other extra little bonuses there. And those two things can be done either with cornbread stuffing or they can be done with regular stuffing, bread crumb, bread cube, whatever. I wouldn't do either. I wouldn't do the pecans with the chestnut sausage. It's, it's kind of too much. But apple's actually really nice in there. And by the way, totally different situation. That stuffing with like a grill, like a thick, like inch and a half thick, So you just like use just a basic salt sugar brine similar to turkey brine, and then do a thick grilled pork chop with that with apple in it. Oh wow, wow! And you could do that if you want to do that paleo. Do the chestnuts and the sausage, and don't do the cornbread, or get some of that cornbread stuffing stuff, right? And once you've got the, the chestnuts and the sausage that kind of cooked together, start add a little bit of butter if you need a little more grease. There's probably plenty from the sausage, but a little more butter if you need it. A little bit of stock just to wet it. And start sprinkling the cornbread in there and start mixing that. And add just enough to bind it. So that'll cut your carbs way down. That's another way to do it. Another thing that's badass in there, fresh jalapenos. I would do that for Thanksgiving, but for the pork thing, as a... All this stuff transfers to other things. Uh, it's pretty badass. I mentioned gravy. All right. So my wife just happened to stop by the market on the way home. I'm making homemade chili tonight, and I needed some dried chili peppers because we wiped them all out with the uh, breakfast tacos that I made for the workshop. But uh, she happened to pick up, like, four jars of turkey gravy, even though I make homemade fresh gravy. This is what I'm going to tell you. Like, the gravy that comes in a jar is the best gravy you can buy at a store. It's better than the little envelopes and packets and things like that. Or if you go to like uh, Costco, Costco sells, sells gravy in like a plastic tub back where they have all the meat and everything, the pre-made stuff. They sell turkey gravy like that. That's, that's really good. It's not as good as homemade gravy. Why do you do this? In case you run out or in case something goes wrong. Thanksgiving without gravy is a disaster. Okay? So I believe in redundancy of gravy. Gravy redundancy 101. But I always make my own gravy. And here's how I make my gravy. Remember I said to cut the wingtips off of the turkey. Okay? There's a reason. They're not good to eat. They do make good stock. Into a stock pot, you're going to put some water. You're going to throw your heart, your liver, your gizzard, your wingtips, and if you bought a turkey from the store, your neck and the tail. Oh, I messed up, didn't I? So when you've taken all the parts off the turkey, and you got that turkey core, you're going to chop that up however you need to, cut it up, part it out, and you're going to put it into a bag and you're going to freeze it. And you're going to use that to make turkey soup with later. Here's why you're going to do that. You're going to go through Thanksgiving. You're going to have an ass load of leftovers. You're going to have that big turkey core. You're going to decide because Martha Stewart tells you on Sunday morning to make soup out of it. You're going to make soup. Now you're going to have even more leftovers. It's going to be a pain in the ass. Everything's going to be in the way. By the way, if you make turkey in a roasting pan, instead of parting it out the way that I said, you're going to end up with a pan full of grease. 
And if you don't feel like cleaning it afterward, and you never do, you're going to put the whole thing in the refrigerator. You're going to have turkey jello in the next day, and it's going to be a mess to clean. If you do it my way, it's going to be much easier to clean up. But when you when you park that turkey out, the tail will usually still be there. That has a lot of uh, cartilage and stuff in it. Cut that out if you can, or if you care to, and add it to your stock pot with all your other, uh, your offal, I guess, in your neck. And you're going to slowly simmer that for about an hour with salt and pepper and sage. Okay? Fresh sage, dried sage. If you use dried sage, use like a couple pinches. You can way overdo dried sage. If you use the fresh sage, I would use about four or five leaves sliced into like fine ribbons thrown in there. Very, very, very good. We're going to slowly simmer that. And then we're going to remove everything. And this is where my dogs have a good day. They get everything except the neck. Usually by about this time, the first football game will be on. I'm ready for a break. Everything's in pretty good shape. I go sit down with a beer or a glass of wine, and I eat the turkey neck with the cat. And uh, my house cat, Alice, doesn't really like the neck, and I do. So I will go bring uh, Fox, who I used to bring Ralph in for it, but Ralph's gone now. Fox likes it. I'll sit down and eat the neck with the cat. The dogs don't get any neck. That's kind of gone away, and I'll tell you why. I don't usually have the neck for this anymore because the necks that come off the turkeys that I raise are about as big as round as, like, my wrist, and I'm a pretty big guy, maybe bigger than that. They're one of the best things to eat on the turkey, so I keep them separately, and I roast them in the oven or on the grill wrapped in foil with salt and pepper and some garlic and stuff like that on them. So I don't usually have the neck anymore, but that's been my thing. So now maybe I'll eat a little bit of the tail or something like that with the cat. But you take all of that out, you have basically a stock. I usually put like a handful of black pepper in there as well, black pepper corns, to strain that because you don't want that too much of that in the gravy. So I'll strain all of it out through a strainer, and now you have a strained stock. And now you're just simply going to make a butter and flour roux. What's a butter and flour roux? It's basically an exact ratio, one-to-one, of butter and flour. And how much? I don't know. I don't know how much stock you're going to end up with. I don't know how much gravy you want. And if you want more gravy than you can get out of that, what you're going to do is just add chicken stock or add turkey stock that you can buy. Or maybe you've made some stock, so you pull a quart of stock out, whatever. But you have your nice stock, and you have a second pan. And in that pan, let's say that you, to thicken this, you need about... Oh, I don't know, um, uh, eight ounces or eight tablespoons of butter to eight tablespoons of flour. You're going to put eight tablespoons of butter in the saucepan. You're going to slowly melt it so you don't scorch it and burn it. And then you're going to, once the butter's melted, you're going to start adding your flour. You're going to stir, 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 stir. Don't let it burn. If it browns a little bit, that's actually fine, but don't let it burn. You want to cook it low temperature, just a bit, so the flour cooks. There's no raw flour taste. You're not going to dump your your stock in there and stir it, and it'll thicken and make a gravy. That's all gravy is. Then you can add salt and pepper to taste. I prefer not to over-salt things. You can under-salt them because people can always add salt, but they can't take it out. Pepper is something I love, but a lot of people, like, I go way too much with pepper, so I go just a little bit of pepper. That's it. It's done. It's fantastic gravy. And if you do this this way, have you ever been to somebody's house and they have turkey gravy and it looks like beef gravy because it's so dark? 
Because they did it with the, like, they cook the turkey in the pan, and then they take it out, and they throw the pan up on it, and they cook that. It just, it, it, it gets burnt when it looks like that. You'll get a nice, it'll look like the color of the gravy you buy from the store, but it tastes better. Now, what if you make it, and you go, shit, that's too thin. It's not a problem. Take the pan that had the stock in it, right, which is obviously enough to hold it, Clean it out, set your your gravy aside, and make another roux. Maybe this time it's four and four. Maybe it's maybe it's way too thin. Make roux again, dump it back in there until you get the thickness you want. Once you get the thickness you want, based on you know you had two four cups of stock, whatever it is, make a mental note for my gravy with this much. I need eleven tablespoons of salt. I mean, 11 tablespoons of flour and 11 tablespoons of butter, and now you know what your ratio is. I'm not going to give you one because everybody likes their shit their way, and I don't know how much you're going to end up with. But I promise you it's not hard. You don't need anything more than I just gave you to make fantastic gravy, and because you believe in gravy redundancy, get either jarred gravy or the tubs of gravy from like Costco. As your backup gravy redundancy and your leftovers, you know, you might need more gravy to go with your leftovers anyway. And if you get it in the jar, it stores long term. So there's always that time where you're going to make something quick for dinner and some gravy goes good with it anyway. Next up, we're going to do green beans. And you know what we're not going to do? We're not going to do condensed soup with like those nasty fried potato things on top of making green bean casserole. If you like that, God bless you, go for it. I think it's a horrible, horrible thing to do to a green bean. And I don't think it gets eaten anywhere near as much as people think it does. I think everybody takes a spoon because Anna Edna made it. And everybody wants Anna Edna to feel good. So everybody takes a bite or two of it since it's so yummy and kind of buries it underneath some shit. And then when the plates get scraped, it goes into the garbage can and even the dog doesn't want it. Don't do that. Here's how you make your green beans something that people will love. And you make it very, very quick. You do it right before you serve everything else. And, but most of the work, the real work's done. So the day before, take some bacon out, six, eight pieces of bacon. Fry it so it's, it's just crisp, like you would like to eat it, maybe a little bit soft. Reserve the fat, put a little jar, set it aside, cut the bacon up, put it in a Ziploc bag, throw it in the refrigerator. When you do your, your green beans, get your green beans. Usually, like for Thanksgiving dinner, you know, The less knives that are necessary, the better. So cut in half so they're about bite size. Not th not little bitty bites, but like, you know, you can pick it up and you can, with a fork and eat it. So you cut your tips off, cut your green beans in half. Uh, get a saute pan. Put that bacon grease into it. Get it nice and hot. Throw the, throw the green beans in there and toss them around. A little salt and pepper. That's it. A little garlic if you want. A little garlic if you want. Garlic, granulated garlic is usually what I use for something like that. Or some chopped fresh garlic's good in there. When they're bright green and still a little bit, you know, to the tooth, they're a little bit al dente yet, take the bacon you had in the, the Ziploc bag, throw it in there and cook it until the bacon's warm through. Take it out of the pan, boom, into the serving pot, and that's like the last thing to make before you put it on the table because it's the one that will cool the fastest and get cold. So if the beans are hot, And the, the meat's warm, like room temperature. Everybody's going to be happy. But if the beans are cold, they're going to think the room temperature meat is cold, too. It's a weird thing how the mind works. So those go last. They'll get devoured. People that say that they don't like green beans will eat them. 
You don't overcook them. They're bright green. They're still a little bit crisp. They have that great flavor. And you want to use either frozen green beans or fresh green beans for this. If you get green beans out of a can, you're wrong. That's, that's survival food. That's not luxury food. And Thanksgiving's about luxury food. Let's talk about a few mashed potato hacks. I'm not going to talk about how to make mashed potatoes, but I'm going to give you a few things you can do that are really great. Uh, number one, you know, usually whenever you're going to make mashed potatoes, you simmer them in water till they're soft before you mash them. Use chicken stock, or when you use water, dissolve a couple tablespoons of better than bullion chicken um, uh, flavor or turkey flavor into them, and chicken flavor is fine for this. It gives them more flavor. Another thing you can do is add some garlic and onions to the cooking water. If you want to take that out, you could actually take like a whole head of a whole head of garlic and cut it in half so that you can like not in half lengthwise across the center so that when you look at it, you're looking in and you see uh, all of the uh, cloves kind of cut in half. You just throw all that right in there because you can just take it out when you go to cook and like cut an onion, like peel an onion, cut it in half, throw it in there and cook a onion and garlic in there and remove it. Just just let the flavor go in the water. Uh, if you're worried about getting them out, you can like take a piece of cheesecloth or a soup sock, put it in there, and like teabag it basically. And that's that's a really great way. You do that and chicken stock in your mashed potatoes. They just have this amazing flavor. I like actually garlic in the garlic in mashed potatoes. Like make some roasted garlic and mash them in, but not everybody's down with that. So the easiest thing to do there is roast some garlic and put it in a little side dish and let people use it themselves if they want to add it to their mashed potatoes. Uh, the next thing is when you do the mashed potatoes, usually you add a little bit of milk to them to get enough moisture to get them to mash the way you want. Use heavy cream instead. And last, if you make up two little bowls, you go ahead and set on your table in advance with finely chopped parsley and chives, one in each, and people will use that on top of there. It's also good on bread and things like that, bread and butter, little chives. If you're serving bread with your with your meal and, and what have you, but those are some great uh, tips there. Now I, I don't really do desserts, but I wanted to give you a couple different adult beverages that you can imbibe in. I'm going to do something today that I think is fitting to do at Thanksgiving because Thanksgiving is about being grateful for what you have and giving back. And I'm going to give away my apple pie moonshine recipe using Everclear, uh, so you don't have to use actual shine. And uh, you might actually use a little bit more shine if you're using shine. Very few people are turning out shine at like 190 proof and above unless you have one of those really awesome stills from uh, Mile High Distilling with the thumper column and all that. Then you can turn it out first shot at 190 proof. Um, but I make an apple pie moonshine that is, I think, the best there is. And... There's some secrets in it, and some of these secrets are secrets that are old secrets that quite a few people knew about, but they're not really unknown anymore. Like, if you st just a little bit of Googling, you'll see them used here and there. Um, the other stuff is there's a couple things here that are really mine that I have never seen anybody use, call for in a recipe, ever. And I'm giving them away. And that's a little hard for kind of an alchemist-type cook to do um, because one of them makes it taste like there's butter in it. 
And a few of you out there that have probably been to the one workshop where I bartered the recipe have the recipe. Have You don't have this recipe, but you do have the secret to making it taste like butter is in it. And I'll, I'll just go ahead and say it because if I don't go ahead and say it right up front, I'm going to not say it. You substitute – so most recipes call for an equal amount of white and brown sugar. You substitute honey for the white sugar. And I don't know why – But you know how, like, when you're eating an apple pie, it has kind of this buttery crust thing going on, and it tastes like there's butter in the apple. It tastes like that when you drink the apple pie moonshine. Okay, so this is pretty stout. It's not hugely stout because it's a recipe for two gallons, but it's this is something for sipping, right? This is something, like, maybe as a nostalgic thing, you put a fancy label on it, you put it in a mason jar, and you pass it around, everybody takes a sip or two. This is not something somebody drinks a glass of. The problem is you can drink a glass of it really, really easy. But here's the... here's and I have This recipe is on the show notes today. You can go get it. Um, One-fifth 750-milliliter bottle of Everclear, or high-proof shine if you can get it. Two cups of vanilla vodka. Yeah, that's a that's a well known secret that is no longer you know really hidden very much. It's pretty well known, uh, but that's an old secret. Uh, instead of using vanilla beans because it's less expensive and it it has a lot more bang for the buck to it. <laughs> Here's another secret that's also no longer well cup kept: two cups of Captain Morgan spiced rum. That's an old apple pie moonshine maker's secret because um, it's relatively inexpensive and it, it stretches the batch and it, it's very, very nice. And it avoids putting a whole bunch of like apple pie spice mixed muddly crap in there. Um, again, you can, and you do whatever you want. They make that in like a 70 proof and a 100 proof. It's up to you which one you use. I usually use Hunter for this, but I also very much throttle people when they're drinking it. Uh, and then you need two gallons of apple cider. Let me say something about this. You will see recipes say, one gallon of apple cider and one gallon of apple juice, or half gallon and a half gallon or whatever. Um, mostly in America today, apple cider and apple juice are differentiations in marketing. Really. But cider's tend to be a little bit cloudy and more of just a fresh-squeezed, unprocessed product where juice tends to be like a filtered, clear product. If you can get apple cider, it's what I recommend. And if you can get good, fresh, real apple cider, it's what I recommend. But this will work with any apple juice or cider. Um, and then you need eight, this is, this is a secret, real cinnamon sticks to the two-gallon batch. What do I mean by real cinnamon sticks? I mean Ceylon cinnamon. C-E-Y-E-L-O-N, I think is how you spell it. I'm not good at spelling unless I'm actually writing it down. In my head, I see things weird. Uh, but Ceylon cinnamon. I'll have a link to the brand that I use on Amazon. This is not optional if you want to get this subtle character. What I taste in most people's apple pie moonshine is this really harsh cinnamon instead of this background cinnamon. And it's because they use basically fake cinnamon, which 99% of the cinnamon people use is fake cinnamon. I won't get into the whole differential between the two of them today or anything, but real cinnamon. And then 
two cups of brown sugar, and I personally feel the darker the better, so I like to use dark, and then two cups of honey. Again, this is with a two-gallon batch. You can cut it straight in half if you want to. You can use half a bottle of your Everclear and a cup of vodka, a cup of Captain Morgan, one gallon of cider, you know, what have you. Um, and then here's the procedure for this. So you take the apple cider and you put it in a big pot because it's a lot. And you, you heat it up and you throw in your cinnamon sticks, your sugar, and your honey and you stir it until they dissolve. That's really all you need. And you turn it off and you let that sit. Once it comes down in temperature, you go ahead and you add all your alcohol, your vodka, your Everclear, your Captain Morgan. You give it a good stir. And then you go ahead and put that into, I usually do it in quart jars because it looks cool and that's what everybody expects. What I like to do then, the cinnamon sticks that I use are pretty big. I'll cut them in half. And if you've never used true cinnamon, it'll surprise you how easy it is to cut true cinnamon compared to that fake crap that they call cinnamon. It's a lighter color. It's less harsh in flavor. It's a softer flavor. I'll usually cut them in half, and I'll put one cinnamon stick in each jar. It looks cool, and it continues to add flavor. Um, you will get more cinnamon over time with this if you let it sit. But if you wanted to make a batch of this up tomorrow and serve it for Thanksgiving, no one's going to bitch about it. I promise you, no one is going to bitch about it. So that's my apple pie moonshine. And again, the true cinnamon... Um, And then the honey, those are spiritos that, that until today, I, I don't think you can find a recipe that specifies either one of those online. So I've given that away. And then last, I wanted to give you like, a, like okay, maybe you wanted to do an adult beverage thing that's really cool that people will talk about and remember. Uh, they won't get completely soused on. More like a dessert. Uh, and you want it to be simple. Well, here you go. You need high-proof peppermint schnapps like uh, Rumplemints or something like that, 100 proof, peppermint schnapps, and white chocolate liqueur. There used to be a brand called uh, Celtic Dream. It was an Irish white chocolate liqueur, and it was inexpensive. It was, you know, it was like, like a bottle of schnapps in price. It was eight, nine, ten bucks for a bottle. I have not been able to find it at any of the liquor stores around here, and while I can find it online, no one around here will order it for me. The only white chocolate liqueur that I've been able to find in the bottle shops around here local to me is expensive. It's made by Godiva, as in Godiva chocolates. But it's very, very good. And what you do is you take your hunter-proof peppermint schnapps and you put it in the freezer. It won't freeze. You take your Godiva white chocolate liqueur and you put it in the refrigerator. And then you just simply take a shot glass and you fill it halfway with your peppermint liqueur and then you pour your white chocolate liqueur on top of it gingerly. You don't care if it mixes a little bit, but what will happen is there is two different densities of liquid there and it'll kind of sort of mix a little bit so that when you drink it, you get the white chocolate mostly first and the, and the peppermint finish. It's pretty freaking awesome. Okay, if you have people driving... They shouldn't have two of these and hit the road. Uh, this is for your guests that are maybe going to snore for a couple hours before they leave or spend the night or something like that. Your nightcap dessert, that type of thing. For you and mom, after everybody leaves and you're finally winding down, you want a, a nightcap. But these are pretty fantastic. We do them around Christmas, obviously, for the same reason. White chocolate mint, how could you go wrong? And okay, I said no desserts. Damn it, I'll give you one. 
I'll give you one that's really easy, really simple, and is different than what most people will ever get. Basically, stuffed baked apples. This is really easy. What we're going to do is we're going to take out a stick of butter, and we're going to let it soften, maybe two, depends on how many of these things you're making. And we're going to core our apples. We're going to leave them whole and core them. So you either have to do this with a knife, or they make a special little apple coring tool. Uh, I'll see if I can find one if, uh, if you prefer that. But you can do it with a knife if, uh, if you want to. And we're going to core the apple out, and then we're going to take brown sugar, and the softened butter, and we're going to mix it together. Probably about one part butter to two parts brown sugar. And light to medium brown sugar is probably best for this. Uh, you could add a little bit of cinnamon if you want to to this. So take the true cinnamon and a zesting tool and, 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 or grate, a fine grater and hit it with a little bit of that or throw a little bit of true cinnamon into, the, uh, into your spice grinder, grind that up and dump that in, mix it up. Uh, with your butter and your brown sugar. Some people do raisins with that. I don't really think they add much, and they just take up space. They could be otherwise use my butter and sugar, so <laughs> I don't really need that. Uh, you can use a little bit of, uh, of, of ground nutmeg if you want to, but, again, that's not really necessary. Just butter and sugar is all that you really need in this. And fill the center of the apples. Throw them in the oven, bake them at 350 until they're soft. When you can take and you can push on them and they're soft, they're done, bring them out. Please, please let them cool. Butter and sugar reach temperatures well in excess of the 212 degrees that water reaches. Combined with apple flesh, it gets very, very molten hot. And then... You just tear into it. Leave the peel behind and just eat the center out. If you really want to take it over the top, cut it in half. Lay it down with the peel side down after it's cooled down so that it doesn't completely melt. And, and serve it with a scoop of really good vanilla ice cream. If you want to, serve that scoop to the side of it so it doesn't melt into it. Let people kind of melt it to themselves. There's my dessert, even though I said I wouldn't do one because it's Thanksgiving and it's time for giving as well as thanking. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I know it's kind of just a fun show, not really a survival show uh, type of show like we do a lot of times, but it is the time of year for some fun and enjoyment. And I figured if I gave you this much, that even a lot of people that wouldn't do everything, and I don't think anybody's going to do everything I put out, will pick one or two of these things and make them your own. Maybe you just do the appetizers. Maybe you go ahead and part that turkey out this year and brine it and smoke it, and it'll come out so much better, and your cleanup will go so much easier, and your serving time will be so much. You know, maybe you make you know just the apple pie moonshine. I don't know what it is, but hopefully you enjoyed today's show. If you did and you want to support us, one of the great ways you can support us that is just so simple to do is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. You go to tspaz.com, you click a link, you get on over to Amazon, do whatever you're shopping. You were going to do that day through there. You help support the show just by going to tspaz.com first before you do your online shopping. But you'll also be able to look at our item of the day reviews. And today's item of the day is an item I reviewed, I think, first uh, all the way back in uh, January of this year. Thought with all the cooking talk today, it was time to bring it back again. It's the Lodge Carbon Steel Season Skillet. Uh, my buddy David was over the house one day when I was cooking this, and he goes, that's like thin cast iron, isn't it? And I'm like, no, it's carbon steel. And the way it's seasoned, it looks like cast iron. It's very nonstick. And when I first started using these, 
I used them pretty much just for searing. I would get them screaming hot and I would sear a steak that I would then finish on the grill or in the oven. Or I would do a sous vide of something and I would use it to, to finish a sous vide because they heat up so much faster and transfer heat so much quicker than cast iron. They, they really do because of their efficiency. As I started cooking with them, I use them a lot. I do a lot of sautéed vegetables in them. I do seared scallops in them. Oh, my God. Someday I'll tell you how to make seared scallops. It'll make you cry. Um, just great. I have a 12-inch and an 8-inch one. And I've been through a lot of different cookware, nonstick, gray stone, stoneware, this, that, the other. I've pretty much just totally settled now on cast iron and carbon steel. Right now, most of my cooking is done with either an 8-inch carbon skillet, a 12-inch carbon skillet, which are the two things I have reviewed for you today, a lodge square griddle, a lodge cast iron wok, and a lodge dust oven, and then I have several uh, rehabbed smaller skillets that are like the old Griswold ones, the milled cast iron you can't get anymore from like, uh, from like flea markets and antique malls. And I have an assortment of stock pots. Like stay, I use stainless steel for that for boiling and stuff like that because you, you just I, I don't see stainless steel or uh, cast iron as good for boiling and making soups and stuff like that. Uh, my current plan, actually, over time, is I'm going to probably add the Lodge Mini Cast Iron Wok. That thing's pretty cool. I have a link in the review today. You can take a look at that if you want. And a 10-inch skillet uh, because I have the 8 and the 12. And I might add another 8-inch because they're so versatile and small and easy and what have you. Uh, I really like them because you get that high temperature, and they're lightweight compared to the cast iron. So if you want to do, like, vegetables where you're going to do, like, an actual, you know, like a toss instead of using a spatula because you break stuff and mess it up. A lot easier to do than with a big cast iron skillet. It's hard to kind of give that toss to it, and it takes longer to heat up. So depending on what you're doing, you might find them, you know, to be better. Uh, check out my review. I got all the information, all the links in it for you today. And again, I have links to all of the stuff that I talked about that you can find on Amazon uh, in today's show notes for the stuff I talked about for cooking today. That brings us to our song of the day. And I hope it comes through in my cooking for you that I consider this song to be the kind of song that's a, about a guy like me. Um, and it's one of the most famous songs of all time. And, you know, I'm going to tell you something made me feel old after I tell you what the song is. It's Simple Man by Leonard Skinner. And uh, so John Adam picks these songs out for the shows, and he sends me supporting material, sometimes lyrics, backstory. If Song Facts has a write-up on it, he'll send me the Song Facts link. And uh, what I saw when I got to... <laughs> when I got to Song Facts today that hit me, it wasn't anything to do with the backstory. Simple Man by Leonard Skinner, and then it says Album... Leonard Skinner, pronounced Leonard Skin Nerd, L-E-H hyphen N-E-R-D, S-K-I-N hyphen N-E-R-D, released 1973. When internet users require pronunciation guidance for Leonard Skinner, those of us who think such a thing is preposterous begin to feel truly old. I mean, I, I know that this album was released a year after I was born. So, you know, obviously it's an old song. I'm an old guy. Um, and a lot of you guys are maybe a little older than me. Remember when it was released and you feel even older. But, I mean, I remember 80s, 90s, like this song just being still huge. 
And it wasn't just people my age. Like, if I was somewhere and people were younger than me, everybody. The fact that people need to know how to pronounce Leonard Skinner today, I I just don't know. I, I don't understand that. I mean, good God, this is it's not like it's from the 30s or something, pre-war or something like that anyway. But, uh, yeah, people need guidance on pronouncing Leonard Skinner. Here's some backstory on it. Shortly after Ronnie Van Zant's grandmother, who was Ronnie Van Zant? <laughs> I have to explain, you wouldn't understand. And Gary Rossinger's mother died. They got together in Van Zant's apartment and started telling stories about them. Rossington came up with the chord progression, and Van Zant wrote the lyrics. Based on advice the women had given them over the years, they wrote it in about an hour. Even though the lyrics state, Sit beside me, my only son, Ronnie was not the only son. He had two younger brothers, along with one older sister and one younger sister. Uh, this appears on the soundtrack to the movie Almost Famous. Skinner producer Al Cooper didn't like the way this was coming out, so the band recorded it without him and had him add his organ part later. He didn't think they should release it, but realized he was wrong when it went over so well with their fans. When Skinner toured in 1987, they dedicated this to Van Zant. The studio and live versions of the song are tuned to different keys. The studio is A-B, while the, while the live is in the key of A. The heavy metal band Shinedown recorded an acoustic version. The Deftones also covered it with their B-Sides and Rarities CD. Um, if you want any more of the song facts, you can take a look at that and look it up. Um, this song really is about you know, being a person who's content with who they are and not lusting after things you don't really need. And it was apparently the advice both of these men received from their mother, you know, was exactly that, to be happy with who you are. Um, it's pretty damn good advice. Let's take a look at the few of the lyrics for Most of you probably know them all by heart, but here we go. Mama told me when I was young, come sit beside me, my only son, and listen closely to what I say. And if you do this, it'll help you some sunny day. Oh, take your time. Don't live too fast. Troubles will come, and they will pass. You'll find a woman, and you'll find love. And don't forget, son, there is someone up above. And be a simple kind of man. Oh, be something you love and understand. Baby, be a simple kind of man. Oh, won't you do this for me, son, if you can. Forget your lust for the rich man's gold. All that you need is in your soul. I, I, you know, as much as I love this song, when you read those words more as poetry, which is what all good music is, they seem to even hit a little bit harder. I think Simple Man is one of those songs that, in some instances has lost its true meaning because it's been played so long, so many times, so often, you know, over and over and over, that it just becomes that great song that's there in the background and we forget what it's really all about. Well, you know, this week we'll have, across America, a lot of kind of contentious moments with things I talked about at the beginning of today's show with, you know, arguing over this or that and, Man, it's not the time for it. What I find is when people become truly content with who they are, they, they are less concerned about what other people think or feel differently from them. Being a simple man, in the way that this song truly means it, is one way to get there. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. 
Help you figure out how to live that better life. If times get tough, Lord, either if they don't.